Welcome to the Endurance Horse Podcast, where endurance riders from all across the globe gather, sharing their stories, goals, and progress as they train for and compete in endurance events at every level. So kick off your shoes, pull up a chair, and listen as we gather around the virtual campfire and listen to friends from across the world. Welcome to episode 45 of Endurance Horse Podcast. Maybe you are one of the many people tracking the progress of the Tevis Cup that was held this past weekend, July 24th, 2021. Per usual, the Tevis was held under the last full moon in July. This moon is often referred to as the Rider's Moon, and it is under this moon that the annual Tevis Cup is ridden. This was the 66th annual riding of the Tevis Cup, and once again this year, riders had to deal with smoke from wildfires. Tevis has often been called the granddaddy of them all and has inspired endurance events all across the world and even as far as Australia, where the Tom Quilty Gold Cup itself was inspired by the Tevis Cup. Tevis, unlike the Quilty though, historically is held at the same venue every year, and although there may have been some slight changes on the trail over these last 66 years, many of the milestones have always remained the same since 1955. Although many people think of Tevis as a ride with a lot of climbing, and this is likely due to the world-famous Cougar Rock photos that we see online and in print all across the world. Actually, the numbers of climb are pretty large. It's 17,000 feet of elevation gain, but there is also over 21,000 feet of elevation loss during the Tevis Cup. The Hagen Cup is awarded to the rider whose horse is in the most superior physical condition of the first 10 horses who cross the finish line. When listening to the vets present the Hagen Cup this year, I was really touched by the practicality of which the vets said they used to judge the Hagen Cup. And it, it was simply put that it was the horse who the vets felt the most comfortable saying, that's the horse I would get back on and go do the trail again, or get back on and take back out the next day. So it was the horse that had the most health, the most vim, the most vigor, the most spark left, and was ready to go. I did ask about conditioning to a few of the riders, and one of the most common themes I heard again and again was that if you're going to ride the Tavis, you need to ride hills, and hills, and more hills. And the common thread also seemed to be not at speed, so some trotting, and but often walking because some of the, well, I won't get into it. That's in the interview, right? <laughs> so here we go. Without further ado, I bring to you episode 45 of Endurance Horse Podcast, the Tevis 2021 Hagen Cup winner, Dr. Jay Merrow. Today on Endurance Horse Podcast, we are talking to the 2021 Hagen Cup winner, Dr. Jay Merrill. Dr. Merrill is a graduate of Cornell University, Large Animal Medicine, and owns Mariposa Equine Services. Dr. Merrill is also a contributor to the Horse Equine Innovators Podcast. We will provide a link to that in your show notes. And so I always ask, how did you get into horses? <laughs> I know that seems a far leap from Hagen Cup, but I think it's something that's pretty interesting to know how everybody got in. I am one of those that 
uh, I'm that every little girl who never grew out of the dream of, you know, riding and, and owning horses, every little girl who dreamed of being a horse doctor. And I pinch myself every day that I, you know, I, it, it never stopped for me. It wasn't, it didn't become about boys or makeup or, <laughs> you know, any Barbie dolls or anything else. It was always horses. So I, um, I have an unusual background that, um, basically grew up in suburban New Jersey and then spent summers with relatives often my my uh meet my grandparents were dairy farmers but had stopped dairy farming by the time I was young so I was just that kid that um begged borrowed and stole hmm. and got on anything with hair and <laughs> shoveled manure I worked in um through basically starting a junior high and through high school my best friend and I she she um had already been having lessons and, and, and some of it's from my mother. My mother loved horses and owned horses intermittently and there was a divorce. So whenever I was with my mother, she always seemed to land either with friends that had horses or so it probably started there. But I mean, as, as long as far back as my memory goes, horses were just the thing for me. Um, so I just, I, I shoveled a lot of manure to, <laughs> to get a chance to ride horses and any horse I could. And, Really didn't have very formal lessons, but got to sit on the fence and watch the the rather wealthy <laughs> kids get their lessons. And um, so it was all just grit. And then just worked in bar- worked in barns in New Jersey. My all through high school, college, any 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 chance I got. Yeah, the, I'd say the big picture was the dream never stopped for me. Hmm. I just always wanted to be around horses. So how did you find endurance? That's kind of cool. So I was. I did not even know endurance existed as a sport until I was an intern. So I got all the way through vet school in upstate New York, still into horses, um, did an internship in Canada at the University of Ontario Veterinary College, University of Guelph, Ontario, and um, met Yvette Vinton, who is an international rider there, but also all the staff there, they were... Uh, very involved. There were several pockets of endurance rides up in, in Ontario, and that's how I got introduced to the sport. And by then, I had been owning Morgan horses, managed to cobble together enough money to get some Morgan horses. I really wanted to do Morgan preservation and owned a few Morgan horses and had been showing and and, and already was soured, if you will, with mm, the yeah. subjectiveness of the show ring. Many of us find our way to endurance from the frustrations from the show ring. No matter what discipline, you know, you're in, you're, you get frustrated with the subjectiveness. And I clearly, and I had been an athlete my whole life. I'd been a long distance runner. And, and so I was sort of already used to working hard and training hard and, and been in track and field and actually was a javelin thrower as well. So mm. that, so it all just kind of fit with, wow, I could live and die by my own hand. It was up to me whether, you, you know, you would be rewarded with whether you appropriately prepared your horse or not. And it wasn't going to be, you weren't paying for some person's opinion mm. that immediately just tuned into me. But I do remember I was an intern when I started training um, I moved, uh, after my first six months of an intern, then I moved uh, a horse up, found a bar not far from the, from the hospital. And if I basically wasn't having to be at the hospital, I was with, with the horse. And, uh, I do remember trotting down the road thinking, oh my God, I want to do what? Because, <laughs> you know, back then, you know, you're trot, you're trotting, 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 trotting miles and miles and miles. And I, and I, it's funny because people ask me now and I, I just, 
over time, you eventually build up this, this musculature in your own self and mm-hmm. muscle memory and joint memory. And now you can go long gaps and ride a long time. But I, I distinctly remember the beginning with, wow, these people are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I do wish I'd known about it even sooner. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, it's funny how this neat little sport is a lot of people do, still don't know about us. Oh. Well, that's kind of part of the point of Endurance Horse Podcast was to get the word out there. Um, I was actually at the Midwest Horse Fair with my photography booth, and then I just was trying to also contacted AARC and said, can you send me some things I can hand out since I'm going to be there anyway because Endurance was not represented there. There were over 30,000 people there at the Midwest Horse Fair and full riders who had stopped by. You know, I would ask, hey, did you know about Endurance riding? Would you like, you know, this pamphlet? And at a horse fair, they had no idea that endurance existed at all. So um, that was kind of the part of the podcast is I try to um, get other riders into it to say, hey, it does exist. Because in the Midwest, they didn't think it was a Midwest thing. They thought it was a a coast thing, either coast. Right. But the Midwest has a, you know, a lot of endurance riding. Yes, they Um, do. Yep. Yep. So I recently read this quote, and it and it made me think of you. I'm I'm like a lot of other people. I was staying up way too late watching everybody cross the finish line, and then um, watching the um, great volunteers did the the live videos of the Buckles and the Hagen and the Tevis Cup Award. So I I heard this quote or read it, and it said, "Do not focus on your fear. Focus on what you want." And I thought, that's exactly what you have done, because the Hagen Cup has been a longtime goal for you. I am of that opinion. Um, and those of us that are deep into the sport, I think, have that opinion. I, there's, there's, two, there's a couple roads to this. So my very first endurance, I went back home to New York, prepared a horse. It, was, it wasn't until many years later I started having children. So I was sort of, um, I was vetting and sort of loosely attached. My first ride wasn't until 2003, and I went back up to Canada and I was, I was a veterinarian, and I did a lot of research. So I was very well prepared. And, uh, you know, we were, we were winning, winning the race. And it was very competitive. as an FEI, dual FEI. And um, a famous veterinarian up there named Dr. Stan Alchemade, who contemporary of Dr. Art King. Art's another one that started me because I started all my endurance in the East. And he right then and there drilled into me. This was, you know, almost 20 years ago. He said, well, do you want to win or do you want to get best condition? You know, in other words, ratchet it back a little bit here. You're, you're comfortably, pretty comfortably in the wind. You want to come in and really present this horse and have it and take care of it. And it, it just sort of right then oriented my thinking to winning isn't everything. Taking mm-hmm. care of your, taking care of your horses is the most important thing. I will confess, like every other probably, you know, rider that aspires to the upper edge for many, many years, I thought my goal was to win. Tevis. I'll be the first to admit that. And I would say it was probably four or five years ago when I kind of came around to, no, no, that's, and I, and there's a couple reasons for that. Having ridden enough and, and there was a year I was actually doing very well and pulled, pulled winning and, um, at quarry. And if you look at my, I, my first Tevis, we sort of inadvertently was a top 10. It was not at all planned. And if you look at what's happened in the last 10, 15, 20 years, Tevis has now become brutally competitive. The top 10 is quite competitive. The times are, you know, tight. With the time that I was 10th 
in in 07 is out, you know, a couple hours slower than we were. You know, it's just, it's all, it's all changing. It's very, mm-hmm. very competitive. The horses have gotten, everybody's gotten better at it. The horse flesh is, you know, the, 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 I applaud the horse. There's more competitive. It's wonderful. I'm not complaining at all. So it's somewhere along the line I realized, you know, this trail is really tough. It really eats up a lot of horses. And every time, I said it just again on Saturday, every time we get out of the high country and we get close to Robinson, as a veterinarian, I shake my head with, oh, my God, how do any of us, how mm-hmm. do any of us get through this ride with sound horses? This is really mm-hmm. rugged and hard. So I realized that I personally probably did not want to ever push a horse to the point where it needed to finish at like 9 to 10 o'clock at night to try to, 9.30, 10, 10.30, to try to win. And, mm-hmm. and that last stretch from Quarry Inn to race that in, and we've had a bunch of these in the last few years, to really have to go smashing through that to win, I don't, I don't want to do it. So mm-hmm. if I ever win, it'll probably be an, it'll probably be an accident or it inverting, it'll just, or just be a great day. And that's when I realized, you know, to present that horse the next day sound as you can be, uh, happy, perky, bodied out, bellied, looking mm-hmm. like, you know, that was that. It was then. It was a few years ago. I was like, this is the goal. And I, and I agree with you. Most of us that are long-time horsemen have, have now appreciated that. And, I, and that was a, I wrote a Facebook post, and I was, was commenting that really – that's it. The essence of the sport. I'm so grateful. In the early days, we had some trouble. I wasn't part of it then. I was, you know, not, I was probably just too young, but mm-hmm. there was maybe some trouble. But early on, our four founders of our sport caught on to the fact that this is not the point to ride a horse to within an inch of its life, to mm-hmm. make it look like beef jerky, to get 99% out of your horse to win. Mm-hmm. That's not what our goal is. Right. And I applaud that because. And, and, and as time has gone on, as you said, the Hagen Cup has now gotten the prestige that it deserves. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. So come back on Sunday with a horse. And she, this mare finished in, in 19, and she would not have been sound enough to have presented that day. So it's been a process for her. We, uh, like a lot of these race-bred animals, um, now we're struggling with some feet issues. As a veterinarian, I've diagnosed a bunch of feet issues we got it we got to get a little better with our feet breeding i mm-hmm. think on on our race breads um so it's been a tinkering process for for her on finding out what what works best for her and it's funny I, we did not we did not ride saturday to win the hagen at all i just mm. it's the first year i finally had a horse ready for my daughter to actually be with mm-hmm. me we generally in the last three four years since 17 we all rode together my daughter my son and myself and 18, I rode with a friend. 19, I tried to stay with my daughter, but this mare I'm on was is quite talented and was just pulsing in ridiculously. So I went on, and my daughter rode with my Australian friend. And so this was the year that we were like, well, we've got this next mare coming up. Let's hope we can stay together. So that really had been the goal to mm-hmm. kind of toy with the idea of getting into top 10, but making sure we finished. And we just had one of those stellar days. Mm-hmm. We just did. You know, it was just everything worked, and and um, we we just kept going. And it probably was about halfway through the day that I was like, "Wow, this mare's handling these rocks really well. Maybe, maybe the maybe we'll get to present for best best condition." So it it just it was fairy tale, really fairy tale weekend that it all worked out the way it did.
So as you mentioned, your daughter, you two rode the entire ride together this time, and um, your mare's name Correct. was Lena, and Correct. Reina's is Eclipse, or did I hear on a video that you call her Clippy? Yeah, we yeah. nicknamed her Clippy, yep. <laughs> so what was that like to ride across that finish line together, placing sixth and seventh in the top ten? Oh, just, I am, I, and I heard it all day. This, my son has ridden, but he's now moved on. My youngest daughter rode a little bit with us, but um, confessedly loves cow horse stuff. So mm-hmm. she's now moved on and, and is doing cow horse and owns a quarter horse. And so to have this daughter absolutely share every bit of this passion of the sport with me step for step is there's no, I hope that will, I mean, there's a lot of famous mother, daughter and third generation. You have knee mm-hmm. you have third generation. I hope that that's. I hope I've spawned a dynasty and we'll have third and fourth generation. You know, we intend to breed these mares and have our own horses as well. So mm-hmm. it's, there's, it's priceless. There's no, it's priceless mm-hmm. uh, to just have it. And to have your, your children crew for you, it's just, there's, it's amazing. It's, it's the coolest. And it's interesting because this sport, because it's so individualistic, you know, the, a lot of the a lot of the um, riders don't have children. You know, some of them don't have children at all. Right. It sort of selects a certain personality that a lot of them and some of the upper riders don't have children. And so, to be able to raise a child to be that competitive, and it, and I did tease her. She hadn't. She's ridden fast and she's done very well. But I, we had not ridden Tevis that fast together. And I warned her a month or two out. I said, you need to really be ready for this. The canyons are going to be rough. It's going to be hot. That's where I tend to make a lot of time and, and you need to be real. And she did. She, she was ready for it. And, um, I think it was really special for her too. We had talked about it. It was funny. It was only about a half hour out. And I said, okay, now when we go under the banner, we're going to hold hands up. And she's like, Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Mom, I was going to say it too. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about your mares. They're half-sisters. Is that correct? Yeah. So the cool thing is actually I reminded myself they're three-quarter sisters. So the oh. fathers are half-brothers. I personally have been busy couple days tracking down through. So the mares, I believe a lot of their talent is coming from their dam, right. who is old Polish, old Polish breeding. We, we, I've had many series of different bred things for endurance, and I, and I like many people now I really love the minds of race breads and these are mostly their domain um half brothers and I you know the temperament is wonderful my mare just never she's just so polite she just never says no she just is always you know she may question you are you sure we have to but she just (laughs) never says never says no they're very um they're intense and yes she can be a little redheaded you know you've got Mm -hmm. a lot of energy there but you just respect it and and it's fine, but I I am going to spend the next while trying to figure out how to find some more of that old line breeding mm-hmm. through the dam line because I think I already I clearly have good heart rates. The two mares pulsed together, pulse for pulse, and they were ridiculous. There was no, mm-hmm. I mean, places where you normally would have trouble having horses pulse, Deadwood, Chicken Hawk, places like that. I mean, these horses came in and were down within a minute or two. That's just ridiculous. I don't know that I've ever had two horses be that talented in their heart rates. Their CRIs were ridiculous all day. I mean, like 40s, 50 something, and then 40 something. I mean, they were 
just shocking. I mean, I knew they were that talented, but to be put under that pressure was was pretty amazing. So I need to capitalize on that and, and keep trying to go with that. And and I want to go down through some of the older Polish lines because, I feel, again, I feel like I need to fix feet. Right. Um, I need to get a stronger, tougher foot. I've always believed that it is that mare line and maybe even the top line on the mare, in the sire line mm-hmm. there that goes back to the grandfather. I've kind of noticed that the horses I really like, they tend to resemble that part of their pedigree more, you know, and um, I've never understood, <laughs> you know, the big push, well, it's probably money, but for stallions to be the big deal, because I've always believed it, you know, 70 plus percent comes from the mama. I would agree. And, and you, you talk to breeders of any, right. And, and most, doesn't matter which, whether it's Arabs or others, most very knowledgeable breeders will agree with you. It's all in your damn lines. That's right. So, yeah, I, I got to see her on the, thanks to the volunteers who did the live feed. I mean, she looked like she didn't work the day before she looked ready to go. <laughs> um, but also, you looked ready to go. So I was wondering if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about what you do personally to, to make sure your fitness is ready for Tevis. So I am older now, and because of that, I feel like I need to spend as much time I always have to do a two-prong approach. I have to run, mm-hmm. so I have to, to be able to handle canyons. So I normally, I mean, I'm older. I have some knee arthritis. I have some other things. So I confess I don't run all year, but definitely starting beginning of spring. And I'm a horse vet, so springtime mm-hmm. is nuts for me. Mm-hmm. By about the time I get out the other side of breeding season, so May, June, I can usually find the time to start running. So I'll run three, four five miles a day, every day, uh, at least months before Tevis. And then I, to withstand a high end hundred, I do better if I ride a lot. So we have four or five horses going. And Mm -hmm. so I just, I will ideally in several months leading up to something like Tevis, I will actually ride somewhere between 75 and a hundred miles a week Mm -hmm. on various horses. And that, Mm -hmm. that's my personal that helps me. I'm sure I could do a lot less. And often the weeks coming in, so your own horses, your, your going horses need to do less because you're peaked and you're, mm-hmm. you're just kind of coasting along. So I might the week or two before I'm, no, I'm not doing like a hundred miles, but that, that seems to work with me, but I certainly aerobic fitness is a big one. Mm-hmm. I always have to fight my weight. So if I keep my weight down, that's helpful. It's amazing at 50 something, how much better you feel when you are not carrying a mm-hmm. lot of excess Mm-hmm. Excess weight every winter. I seem to get a little too chunky, and then I feel so much better in the spring and the summer when I when I dump it off. It's 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 funny, but yeah, I think to be a, a to be a top end rider and really go at speed and to ask a lot of your horses, you 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 need to be at a reasonable body weight and you need to be reasonably fitness because you if you're not helping if you're going to be a hindrance to your horse, that's right? That's ridiculous. Right. You know, you just, you're, you can make it so much harder on your horse. You need to be setting up there, not smashing down on their back. You need to be flowing with them, mm-hmm. helping them. Um, and so Raina is generally, it's because she's either been school or working full time. She can't ride that many hours. She rides me on the weekend. She'll put, you know, 25, 30 miles with me on each day of a weekend and maybe one day a week. But she will work out every day, mm-hmm. and and can and because she's nineteen twenty, she mm-hmm. can she gets away with that. <laughs> so, um, 
Endurance Wars podcast mostly is, is about the stories and getting to know the people, which which we've done. But I, I always get requests for people to get tips of actual nuts and bolts things. <clears throat> so as we close up here, I had two questions for you. And one would be, and I think you're, you're so qualified to answer this, is what is one piece of advice you would give to riders who might be riding LD now or 50s? And they would like to try 100. What would be like your one best tip for for them? First of all, I would tell them to do it. Don't Mm -hmm. be intimidated and do it. You don't think you can't. You can. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second piece of advice would be, do so so if you look at this mayor's record, I hold to the old school that it takes three years to build a 100 horse. You know, this mayor was three, three years in the making. Um, and that's the, and normally a lot of people like to go grab stuff off the racetrack. Cause I'm sure a lot of us kind of talk behind the scenes. Yeah. You might, you might be able to chop off a year if you will. And you, and this mayor was quote hardened on the, on the track, but for me, you still, so you can maybe do a hundred sooner. And we did 19, I think was our first hundred, but you don't ask for this effort until many many years in. So my big advice would be, yes, yes, you can. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. you can. But two, put the time in, the hours in, and not at speed. Go mm-hmm. slow to go fast. You know, right. go slow earlier. I, I'm i a big fan of multi. One of the reasons we did, there are many reasons we moved west, but I absolutely adore multi-days. And that's really mm-hmm. my, my secret to prepping horses is Many, many, many hours on trail doing multi-days because I, I think that is what hardens the horse and the rider mm-hmm. and tells you what. So if you can't do multi-days, then do try to do a back-to-back 50, mm-hmm. try to do. And, and when we can't, when we don't do them, I'm known at home, like we'll, we, we don't do LDs because I can do all the LDs I want on my own mat. Like we routinely mm-hmm. do LDs at home. So for it would not be uncommon for us to do a, um, several 25-milers back-to-back-to-back, two mm-hmm. or three days in a row over a weekend. Like, if there's nothing that's strategically placed to use an event to get a horse ready, we'll do that at home. Mm-hmm. So so the, the last question I had for you was specifically towards Tavis. So if somebody has done hundreds before, but maybe they live in Kansas or somewhere where there's it's very flat – how would you suggest that they train for the heat in the hills? So I still use a con, even though I live in the mountains and train in the mountains, I still do what we call interval days where I'm a big fan of um, putting depth in a horse by doing, again, I'm, I was an athlete and I hated interval days <laughs> on the track, but it's the concept of putting an animal in anaerobic or uh, increased oxygen debt. So you're, you're running a horse up to where their heart rate gets up to 200 for a certain period, a brief period of time, and then you drop them down. The, my worry, I, I, and I have some friends that do this, they'll go out and do it on, like, flat tracks or, or very slight inclines. That always, I'm afraid I'm going to blow something on a mm. tendon. That scares right. me. So my preference is even somebody in Canada, because I hear from, from flatlanders, they can usually still find a hill. A hill. Like, and when I lived back <laughs> east, I, tra- I would trailer to a certain hill. Mm-hmm. And as long as it's like even a, a quarter mile is probably not. If you, I mean, if that's all you got, that's all you got. But mm-hmm. if you can find something that's a half mile, a mile, I would, um, that's what I do. I, I 
start trotting up and then we're going to do a canter up. And then it's still rare for me to really put a horse flat out. I don't, you generally, if that hill is steep enough, Mm. you'll get the heart rate up to 200 and you're going to, you're going to go up that hill and then you're going to come down the hill. And, you know, and if it's a mile, I probably do four or five repeats of that after I've adequately warmed up and then I'm going to adequately warm down. That would be a secret. That would be how people could get a horse ready for for something like Tevis. And again, that would be on a horse that's already legged up and fit, right? Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, and you can use, you can, the cool thing is even if, let's say your horse is not its third year, it's even its one or two year, Mm -hmm. then what you do with something like that is you just trot. You trot up the hill and then, but you don't ask for the, right, the heavy duty running up a hill until they're legged up enough. Exactly. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like and what that ride was like at night and coming across the No Hands Bridge? We figured out early on that my mare also, like she, she's so dependable. You don't need anything like not even glow sticks. So we, I was at Francisco's with her the first year and they, I had glow sticks on her collar, breast collar. And their volunteers noticed that they hadn't even been popped yet. And they're like, oh, let's snap these and we'll get these. And, and I'm like, okay, sure, fine, fine, fine. And we started to go over the edge to go leave the, the hold and go down in the dark. And the mare was like, whoa, what is that? And she's throwing herself backwards and she's blink, blink, blink. And I'm like, oh, okay, you don't jump off, rip them all off, take them off. And she shakes herself. She's like, thank you. And off mm-hmm. we go. And, and so she is deaf. There are, you know, my daughter likes to ride with glow sticks. Um, this mare is just, and I've had the privilege, to, most of the ones I've been on, I've had the privilege of being able to turn off the light. Um, the one year I rode with all my kids, I did use a red light because I think it was just, um, generally if I use anything, it would just be red. But this mare just is like, I got this. And you went there, and there's horrible periods of still very rough trail. And you just sit there and she'll slow down when it's terrible and pick her way through it. And then she, you know, you don't ask, she just picks her way back up. Okay. We're trotting now. And I mean, there was maybe one or two play. There are a couple places where there are some crisscrossing trail where a horse is following the trail, you know, like you had to guide her through a couple places. Like I could see where they were glow sticking and there were trail intersections, but to be able to just sit up there and, trust this horse and the pitch because when you're riding that fast you generally don't get that moon it doesn't help you at all it doesn't come up over the ridge until you're almost done so you're you're just in the dark and the white the whiteness of the path sometimes show up a little bit but it i tell people this all the time it's magical to just be with your horse and trust them and and it is not it's it's crazy i mean you come down into some of these turns on the canyon edges and it it is just black like you cannot see your hand in front of your face but the horse is like i got this let's Mm. go just you know go with me it's it's really neat it's indescribable almost it's amazing what was your favorite part of this ride oh boy Mm. um i you know this year i there was only one part where i was feeling myself sort of tore, tore up <laughs> a little, <laughs> a little tired. That was actually after midway through the California loop. And then like, I, you know, I don't have a, it was all good. We had one Robinson flat. She was a little flat. She was not wanting to eat as much as she wanted. So then I spent the next section between then and last chance, a little, little like worried about her, but she was 
perfectly, you know, she was fine. Um, I don't know. It was, I don't like the canyons. Nobody does that, that, that first Canyon is really just a, really just a booger. Um, the high country is always beautiful. Always. Of course this year it was smoky. It was interesting how, how smoky it was. Um, I love how the mayor just goes hop, hop, hop over Cougar Rock. So we were, I was leading my daughter and we had another friend with us briefly and we were just behind another group who all, um, this happens to horses sometimes. You're coming up to Cougar Rock and so many people are taking the bypass now. We, I go over always, we always go over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so she sees these five or six horses go the other way and I'm like, nope, this, we're going this way. Mm-hmm. And she reorients and like, okay. And then you're hop, 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 and you're up and over. I mean, maybe that. I don't know. The fact that Mm -hmm. you just, it was always, my favorite part was always the fact that when I asked her to do something or I asked, she did it. And, and then, you know, the other thing is you don't, this, this, when you aren't a good horse, you're not kicking it, kicking it. Like I said, in the dark, in the finish, when she would walk, she's done through the bad terrain. She picks herself back up and like, okay, we're trotting now. It isn't, I'm so damn tired. I just want to walk mm-hmm. all the way to the finish. You know, she, she wanted to keep going. She had that much, she had that much, you know, left in her. That's such a cool feeling mm-hmm. late at night, that late, you know, you're, you're approaching, you know, 10, 11 o'clock after you've been in the saddle since 4 a.m. I mean, that's just so cool. Mm-hmm. There's one thing that I thought of to ask you because um, you brought it up a little bit. I don't want to regret not asking you. So you spoke to the point of tapering, which I imagine you, you also got from your long-distance running background. But sometimes when I when I see people conditioning, even for a 50 or something, and they seem to never taper. So could you mm. just maybe just speak to what tapering is and how you would taper before um, a ride like a 50 or any 100? So the, the trouble with the horses is i mean i i will i will be very upfront and honest most elite horses are a tie-up waiting to happen mm. <laughs> every you know every step and this mare will tie up so you have to find that bubble if you will and she we she couldn't even start nationals because i had some tie-up trouble with her before nationals so i was on edge all the last month or so leading in but so Normally, we will train quite hard until maybe two to three weeks before a big hundred. Mm-hmm. And then, say, at the three, maybe about two weeks before a big hundred is probably going to be our last long ride, that two-week weekend. Mm-hmm. And then, so that's that last two weeks for us is where we're really tapering in. And by ta- So no more 25s. They probably did... 12s and 13 milers, long warm-ups, some a little bit of speed work, if you will, not not running hard, but some at speed and then down. And then when you have a tie-up horse, like you can't go four or five days. Like you, mm-hmm. they have this mare never missed more, never had more than two days off. And in that last two weeks, she worked in week two before the ride, she worked at least every other day. Mm-hmm. And then I will say... Um, the Sunday before Tevis, she had a 10-miler. Monday, she was off. Tuesday before Tevis, from Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, she was rode every day mm-hmm. because I, I did not want to have a tie-up. Now, by that, it meant it was only like five to eight miles every time. But mm-hmm. um, it would have a long, long, long warm-up, several miles of some nice at-speed work, and then a nice long 
warm down. So that that's still an example of tapering, though, because you're not doing long rides anymore too much. You know, you would never do an interval workout in your taper period. So tapers mm-hmm. generally are like two to three weeks, depending on who mm-hmm. you're who you're talking to. You know, and I think that's really helpful because maybe people that don't have a running background wouldn't know, maybe they wouldn't know that. And that might be a key that somebody really needed to hear today. So I thank you for sharing that with me. Well, Jay has been an absolute honor to talk with you. It was a wonderful thing to see how much spirit your mare still had the next day. And absolutely, congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. And I know you're a busy lady, and I know you're back to work already. So <laughs> I should probably let you go and get your day started. It was it was so much fun. And I and I thank you for spreading the word. I think this mm-hmm. sport should, you know, it's, we need it to grow. It's just a really wonderful option for people that own horses to do this. All right. Thank you so much for the opportunity to to have a chat. It was great. Thanks, Jay. It's been a pleasure. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye. To share your story on Endurance Horse Podcast, send an email to endurancehorsepodcast at gmail.com.